0: okay I thought we would begin this morning by having you guys just review some various beliefs or understandings maybe you would preface your comment by saying well I was taught you don't have to say necessarily well I believe but you can say well I was taught or I know some other people teach now let me let me just caution you let's not have a bunch of repetition so if you want to say what you believe you better speak up first because if somebody else already says it then i'm going to ask you to say well these other this other group teaches such and such but uh that's just a bit of humor uh i've put some words on the board to maybe prime the pump to get you guys thinking about you know the the various aspects of the end times right that's the section that we have started now if you're Keeping up in your 50 Core Truths book, right? Uh, we've entered the section of, in, of end times. So what does the church teach? You know, big, universal church. What has the church taught over the centuries? Uh, what does it teach now? Uh, are any of these terms invalid that you see on the board? My personal
1: perspective is that many churches teach that we're to fear the rapture in the end times and the because it's the rise of the antichrist, and maybe we're going to have a little bit of a hard time. Because of it. Okay. That's my personal perspective. Yeah. A lot of people are afraid. When I mean, I've always asked them, "If you really believe this, if you really think this is like we're getting really, really close, yeah, then that you should be smiling and not scared,
0: okay? Because you know it's the end. All right.
1: But it's often a fear. Okay. At the end. Yeah. This
0: world. Okay. That's what I personally
1: think they're actually. Doing.
0: Yeah. That's, a, that, that's like the practical emotional response to some of these teachings. Derek? I think when I first became a Christian,
1: I stayed away from all of these things. Yeah. Because from my perspective, from the outside looking in, the people that were mainly talking about these things appeared to be just,
0: from Can, my perspective,
1: a little bit crazy. Okay.
0: <laughs> at, at least we would say they are consumed by. They're
1: not crazy for the But yeah. Really Position was all oh, well, because that's what my pastors thought. And I just thought to yeah. myself as a church member and as a Christian, I don't have time to stay everything. Yeah. So I'm gonna pick what to get myself to which I
0: understand this is gonna be the last on my list. Now I'm not saying the last on your list. No, I understand.
1: but Yeah. I, but it's okay to say like here's what my yeah. believe and I trust those men. And I yeah.
2: don't have time to be a Berean in every single of <laughs> detail.
0: So. Yeah. Okay.
2: Dave. Um, since I a, uh, didn't become a Christian in a church, I wasn't really exposed to all these terms or anything. Yeah. But I do remember a great longing for Jesus to come back. Yeah. Just, uh, Just a passionate desire and thinking it was going to be pretty soon.
0: Yeah. You know, Good. Uh, every day, almost living
2: with the uh, hope that he was going to come back. Yeah. And then you know, he, then you begin to talk to a lot of other Christians and get all these terms and views and <laughs>
0: it's like, no, 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 I If anybody ever breaks out a chart to you to explain <laughs> all these things, <laughs> maybe just run. <laughs> Tim. I I
1: grew up with
0: that. Yeah. With the charts. I did. I grew up with charts too. <laughs> it was pretty truth
1: yeah. Rapture, and I, I, I remember as a child, I, I don't remember the guy's name, but uh, travel evangelists came to our church. This was in northeastern Ohio and, and had charts spread the width of the stage, <laughs> that, which was not quite as wide as, the, as that. Wow. We'll more wow, yeah, that's maybe big about up. three of those sections. Yeah. In every detail mm-hmm. was nailed down precisely. Yeah. And trying to, when I, when I began to read the Bible a little more carefully yeah. <laughs> and understand a little more clearly at least a few things, it was really hard to get all that out of my head. Yeah. Because it was, it was drilled into us and we used to, we used to joke about, um, at that time the Schofield Reference Bible was extremely popular and that was the view espoused by Schofield. Yeah. We used to joke about the Pentateuch by Schofield with notes by Moses. Yeah. <laughs> it was, it, I mean, that's a sad joke. Yeah. yeah. But it was so, the, the, the notes and all the details were so much more important mm-hmm. than the actual words of Scripture. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That's what I grew up in. James.
0: I read the Left Behind series, uh-huh. which I noticed was
1: mentioned in this chapter. Yeah, and it mentioned all of those. I was fascinated, and parts of it were scary too. But yeah, I, I really loved that whole series. I sure, thought every book that I read was better than the one I just read. <laughs> Has anyone
0: else read that series? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I read the first one or two. I was in college, so they were making me read other things when they were coming out, but uh, I- I've read a few of them, yeah. And, and it can be scary, and uh, we need to keep in mind that it is a fictionalized account, uh, but it-, it does espouse a certain viewpoint, doesn't it? It espouses that um, there are actually two comings of Christ. There's a secret coming where he raptures the church and... That, that's kind of this mysterious people-just-disappear event. And then there's a tribulation, which lasts for a specific seven-year period. And then after that, Jesus returns a second-second time, uh, maybe a third time, to come back in glory and reveal himself, and then he sets up the millennium. Uh, that, that's a specific view, and uh, we might call that dispensational premillennialism. Okay. Other views might include, uh, there's something called historic premillennialism. Historic premillennialism would say that uh, there is a tribulation at the end of the age. At the end of the age, there is a tribulation, and the church lives through it. There's no secret rapture to take the church out of tribulation. Church lives through tribulation, then Christ returns, and in his glorious returning, he sets up a millennial kingdom, and... uh, and reigns on the earth for a thousand years before the final judgment. Okay, so that's another view. Uh, another view might be what we would call postmillennialism. Postmillennialism says that uh, the tribulation has pretty much taken place. It it was fulfilled in the first century with the destruction of Jerusalem. And, uh, and the false teachers and the scoffers that Peter talks about. Uh, the tribulation has already been fulfilled. We have entered into a period of increasing gospel penetration into culture, and the more and more we see the gospel penetrate culture, we will see justice reign on the earth. We will see uh, all men united. Not all men, but a large percentage of the world population committed to Christ really in their hearts. And after that spiritual millennium of increasing gospel presence, then Christ will come, and that will be the end. And then uh, Derek mentioned a word called all-millennialism. All-millennialism states that um, what, what we're really experiencing now is a combination of tribulation and millennium. Uh, there is a mixture of suffering and that the church endures with uh, with a mixture of glory because Christ's power is already here and uh, and then at the end of this time there will be a second coming. I know that next week is the millennium. I wanted to review those things because I think it's only fair for you to know where I stand on the subject. As we approach this whole idea of the end times I think it's important for you to know and and, and hopefully Tim and Larry agree with me on this, just Where do I stand? Where do I fit in all of these schemes? Okay, So I would call myself an all-millennialist. All is the negation. If you put A at the beginning of a word, that's negating it. Uh, So uh, if you want to make fun of me, then you would say, Jason believes there ain't no millennium. Which isn't exactly true. I understand that Revelation 20 is inspired by God, and there is a meaning there, but Revelation 20 is the only place you're going to see this reference to the millennium, and if you interpret it in light of the other scriptures, then we're going to see, especially as we talk about the second coming of Christ, which is our specific lesson today, we're going to see that tribulation and glory are mingled together in this age, and it all culminates... With the second coming of Christ, that's my perspective. Okay, that, that I I don't hold this as a gospel requirement. I won't say I am not a brother with someone who holds to historic premillennialism or even postmillennialism. Okay, I've even joked with Pastor Mark before that on my glass half empty days I'm an all millennialist, on my glass half full days I'm a postmillennialist. Right? It's you know there's there's a lot of just you have to understand these things, but I think it's fair for you to know. Uh, where I stand on the whole scheme of things. Okay, Jim. Yeah.
2: I, I've argued this
1: with a lot of people and, and come to the realization through the help of Pastor Ted that these issues should not
0: keep us from fellowshipping at all. Right. That, you know, we can unite
1: around the, the, the truth of the scripture however we happen to see it. Yes. The, the, these, things are not, these things are not
0: separating us. Uh, but there is a question, especially among system, systematic theologians. Where do you place the events of the end times in your scheme of systematic theology? Are they a separate thing to be studied by themselves, or are they part of the salvation doctrines? And, uh, and we might get into a little bit of that as we go. Uh, the more you place them in your salvation doctrines, the more important they seem to become to you.
1: This is just a program, note for those of you who read ahead. Yeah. Larry's teaching the class on the Millennium. I'm doing the class on the Resurrection, but we're switching Sundays. Okay. We're keeping subjects. We're just uh, we'll, we're going to talk about the Resurrection next Sunday. Isn't that right, Larry? Yeah. In fact, I didn't say that because I was trying to look break right, to say the same thing. And Larry's doing the class on the Millennium.
0: And here's the thing. The week after that, I'm supposed to do the... Um, the uh, the general judgment, and we're going to be out of town that week, so I'm going to ask you guys to <clears throat> help rearrange some other things so we can get that done, or maybe just trade me, one of you, yeah. but that's a good segue into, uh, here are some other things that we need, uh, here are some other topics, there, there are seven lessons in total in... Uh, in Allison's book on the end times, or the last things, or eschatology, whatever you want to say. Uh, The first lesson was last week. Did you realize that we started the discussion of the end times last week? Last week, Pastor Thad walked us through our doctrine of death and the intermediate state. That is actually the beginning of our understanding of eschatology. Death is the enemy. Death is not natural. Death is not to be hoped for or prayed for. Death is a nightmare, judgment, wrath of God, given on all people. We should hope for it. We should be a people committed to life, always, from conception to when God ends life. We are a people of life. Death is the enemy. Jesus will defeat death on the last day. Okay. We need to get that in our minds. Why is death so horrific? so that we will look at the cross and we will say that is what sin costs so in the death of every one of our loved ones we sorrow and we mourn we don't sorrow and mourn like those who have no hope pastor thad taught us that last week but we do sorrow and mourn so that we know that this is not the end this is not consuming this is not That, that, what this is, is a representation of what Jesus paid on our behalf. Okay? So when we consider the death of Jesus, we understand that death in our lives is the beginning of the end times. We either enter immediately into the presence of God or we enter immediately into hell. That is what the Bible teaches. Sometimes it's called personal eschatology. It is the beginning of our understanding of the end times. Death. But the death of Christ is the hope there. Okay, uh, this week we talk about the second coming. Uh, evidently the next week we 're going to talk about resurrection, the millennium. I'm actually glad that we're talking about the resurrection next. I wouldn't put the millennium directly after the second coming, but um, okay we're going to talk about the millennium we're going to talk about resurrection we're going to talk about judgment and eternal punishment. but today we're talking about the second coming, okay I am going to posit to you that this thing is an illegitimate word, okay that's an illegitimate word and uh, we're, we're, we're going to talk about the second coming, and next week we're going to talk about what should be replaced with that word there. Okay? So uh, we're going to talk about the second coming. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, please. What do we mean by the second coming? While you're turning there in your Bibles, I recently listened to a debate on uh, YouTube. The debate was between uh, a professor named Jordan Peterson and another professor named Sam Harris. Now, Jordan Peterson was taking the uh, tack that uh, there's something to religion, and that's about as kind of thing as I can say. He, he's, not, he's not arguing as an evangelical Christian, a disciple of Jesus Christ. He's not arguing that way. Uh, Sam Harris was arguing as an avowed atheist. Uh, a Jew by culture, but an avowed atheist who believes that the words of Scripture are, um, can be detrimental. Okay? And, um, and I found myself in that debate agreeing with Sam Harris. I agreed with the atheist throughout that entire debate. Let me tell you why. The atheist said, when people read holy books... Whether it's the Quran or the Old Testament or the New Testament. When people read holy books, they tend to say, this is the plain language that it, that it says here. Sam Harris's view was, but we know better. We know better than to think that this is just, uh, that the plain language here is actually true, right? Men don't rise from the dead, men don't walk on water, men don't uh, arm blind and then become, ha- have their sight, right? This isn't true. While Peterson was arguing, yeah, but there's, there's got to be some sort of you know, cosmic meaning that that, people, that, human, that the human race is fleshing out of all these stories uh, to to derive there. And so you know, he, he, Peterson would say things like, I'm not sure it's at all clear from the New Testament that the people who wrote it actually believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Well, you just need to read it a little clearer then sam harris the atheist reads the bible and says these people believe that the man jesus died on a cross was buried and that body raised again they're wrong sam harris would say but that's the clear meaning of the text and that's what these people believe when it comes to the second coming we need not spiritualize this what's the clear teaching of scripture acts chapter one we'll just read the first 11 verses there In the first book of Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Luke believes that those things happened. Verse 3, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Luke believes that actually happened. The resurrected Jesus appeared to them for 40 days, offering them proofs of his new life verse 4 and while staying with them he ordered them not to depart from jerusalem but to wait for the promise of the father which he said you heard from me for john baptized with water but you will be baptized with the holy spirit not many days from now verse 6 so when they had come together they asked him lord will you at this time restore the kingdom to israel i don't know if jesus ever rolled his eyes but I imagine if he did roll his eyes, he was probably with like you know, the eyes closed type. Like, uh, you, you know what's happening. The eyes are closed, but you know what's going on, right? Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said, And it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on... Which is just to say they saw this happen. As they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. A real embodied man who was dead but has been raised to glorious new life in a resurrection body. Who's been with them for 40 days and presenting proofs of his divinity and his justification by God this real human body was raised into the sky and a cloud hid him from their sight. And while they were, verse 10, and while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. All right. Thank you, Dr. Peterson, for all of your attempts to rescue us poor Christians with your spiritualizing of all these truths, but I agree with the atheist. When I read this text, I believe what it says. It's it's Now, that is not to say that we shouldn't strive for fairness I'm going to talk about that in a minute fairness in our interpretation of the scriptures but in this text what Luke is doing in writing a history writing a narrative he clearly states that the embodied man Jesus Christ rose into heaven and in the same way he is going to return again there will be a bodily visible return of Jesus at the second coming it is not a spiritual event It is not an awakening in the hearts of all Christians at some point. There is a last day. And on that last day, Jesus will be coming back. Hallelujah. Play this game with me. If Jesus were to return, I wouldn't have to name it. Sin anymore? That's not playing the game, Amy. That's just being serious. (laughs) Pay off my house. I wouldn't have to pay off my house. If Jesus were to return, when I was in college it was always I wouldn't have to write this paper that's for sure, right? If Jesus were to return, right? If, if we were playing the game, we could come up with all sorts of things that are part of this life that are kind of annoyances and I wouldn't have to do it, right? What is the actual theological answer though? If Jesus were to return, I wouldn't have to wouldn't have to die the enemy the last enemy that will be destroyed will not overtake me okay um jesus is coming back and on that day all believers will be perfected in their resurrected bodies and we will not have to die anymore as he is so we will be that is coming at uh at jesus return Okay, He is coming, he is coming bodily, he is coming visibly, and we will be with him, and we will be as he is. Second coming is true, it's expounded in scripture, and clearly in narrative passages clearly stated what the apostles believed about this. Okay, let's set up broadly speaking a scheme and I want to move through these uh, a little bit quickly Uh, so if you want to uh, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 12 but once I get there I'm just going to start reading these passages Uh, I I want to lay out for you a scheme that permeates the entire New Testament okay Uh, the entire New Testament has this scheme whereas you know the charts that we talked about they can get pretty complicated the Bible's chart is pretty simple There is this age and the age to come. There is this age and the age to come. And uh, I'm very dependent and thankful for uh, Pastor Sam Waldron, who wrote this, my wife tells me, very scarily uh, pictured book on the front here. I think it was just a low-budget production at the time, or maybe it was just a product of when it was published. But um, End Times Made Simple, I'm very thankful to... Pastor Waldron, he's helped me tremendously just work through a lot of what we believe here and what the Bible teaches about these things. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 32, we read, And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. What is the unpardonable sin? What is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? That's not the point of what we're talking about right now. There is a unpardonable sin. And if we wanted to dive into that, what we would ask was, well, when can it not be forgiven? Neither in this age or the age to come. If we were to look at the parallel passage in Mark chapter three, verse 29, uh, we would see that Mark describes it as the eternal sin, which is to say that all time can be summed up in these two phrases, this age. And the age to come. This age and the age to come encompasses all time. Or consider Luke chapter 18, verse 30. I'll start in verse 29. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. What are we doing here? Okay. Uh, we're just establishing that the, that the scheme that the Bible sets up for us is this age and the age to come. It's a simple scheme. This age and the age to come. In Luke chapter 18 here, it's this time and the age to come. But we understand he's referencing the same thing. Okay, This age and the age to come. Or does, th- does this happen outside the Gospels? Well, consider Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 21. Paul speaking of Christ here. Christ is raised into the heavenly places, seated at the right hand of the Father. Far, verse 21. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Just look at chapter 2, verse 2. I'll start in verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That word world there is actually the Greek word age, aeon. Okay? So in verse 2 we might read, in which you once walked, following the course of this age. Okay, What does it teach us about this age? This age is an evil age. This age is stretching from our first father, Adam, and the sin curse, the sin nature carries through this entire age. What does that imply about the age to come? This age is an evil age. The age to come is a good age where goodness and righteousness dwell forever in the presence of God. Okay, There is this age and there is the age to come. But you say, and we'll just introduce this topic before we get down to Hebrews chapter 2. Just stay in Ephesians chapter 2 here for a second and look at verse 6, because you might say, but there is good in this world, okay? In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, we read, and raised him up, that is Jesus, and with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in christ jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in christ jesus there is the coming ages in which he is showing his kindness toward us but in this age he has already raised us up and seated us with christ there is blessing for the christian in this age it's not all bad it's not all evil right Uh, there, there are blessings but hear this, it is the blessings of the age to come that have broken into this present evil age. It's why the Bible can talk about how we will be how we um, how we were saved, how we are being saved, and how we will one day be saved. The theological language that we might use for this is the already not yet. Okay? At the resurrection of Jesus, the already broke into, in fact, in the ministry of Jesus, the already of the coming age broke into our present age. Right, Blind men were, were given their sight. Lame men walked. Lazarus was raised from the dead. The blessings of the coming age broke into this present age. There is an already. And part of that already is we are already seated with Christ. And yet you say, but I am on earth in this present evil age there's an already of the coming age that is already broken into this current age um, turn to Hebrews with me we're going to skip First Corinthians but turn to Hebrews with me and look at 1st chapter 6 verses 4 through 6 more already talk okay i uh, Chapter 6, verse 4. Uh, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. Okay. It is impossible for those who have tasted the powers of the age to come. Okay. Okay. Which is to say that the powers of the age to come are operative in this age. In this present evil age, the age to come has broken in with power. The power here uh, can also be translated miracles. So when we see the miracles of Christ at the beginning of the church where the miraculous gifts were given for the establishment of the church, we can see that the already future kingdom broke into this present age. And people have tasted of this present age. And then just since we're in Hebrews, back up to chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. God has put everything under subjection under Jesus' feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. We see, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. How do we see him? crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. You see, it is in the mighty work of Jesus on the cross that the future age to come has broken into this age. And now we who are members of Christ's body, we can experience the blessings of the age to come. This age in the Bible scheme is an evil age. You say, but things aren't all evil for me. That's right. What do you attribute that to? You attribute that to the working of Jesus on the cross and therefore his work by the Spirit in your heart to bring about the kingdom in this age. And
1: Jesus himself, like in the book, says, as he's doing miracles, he said, you know, they say, well, you did about Beelzebub. And he says, no, um, the, hand, the hand of God. Somebody quote it me that knows it better than me. If God do it by the finger of God, then the, the kingdom of God has come upon you. Yeah.
0: Something like that. Yeah. And, that, and, and that, that's, that's great. So if we were to draw the scheme, I, 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 say, I keep saying that the scheme is this. There is beginning of time, and there is this age, right? And then in the Bible scheme, there is the age to come, right? But this isn't exactly right. What might be more accurate to see is that in the ministry and life of Jesus, the age to come actually started with the work of Jesus, and this age to come has its blessings infiltrating the, this present evil age. Okay? I hope that's, uh, that, that's the scheme from which I am working uh, through all of our ideas about the end times. When is the return of Christ? Let's look at an extensive treatment of this in Matthew 24. We're going to stay in Matthew 24 for a while, so if your fingers are tired from flipping, I'm going to give you a little bit of a break. Um, Matthew 24 is not the only place we could turn to get this extensive treatment. We could turn to uh, Mark chapter 13. We could turn to Luke chapter 21. You're aware that the three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, have surprising correlation between them, right? They follow pretty much the same events. They report some of the same miracles. And they come at it from a different perspective. But there is clearly a collaboration between the three. Right? There is something going on where the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are uh, connected. Now, uh, why am I turning you to, to Matthew? Well, Matthew's treatment is a bit longer, but that doesn't make it more true. Uh, we're, I want to turn you to Matthew chapter 24 because... In a sense Matthew was an eyewitness to the conversation the the sermon or the teaching that Jesus is about to give in this passage I'm not saying that Mark and Luke are untrue they're clearly inspired by the Holy Spirit but they are pastoral I'm sorry they are apostolic assistants and I know that Peter or Paul would have corrected anything in the misunderstanding of Mark and Luke. Nevertheless, they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. right. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that from Matthew's unique Jewish eyewitness experience, he's recorded the teaching of Jesus here in a unique way. And I want to look at it in that unique way, which is to say I want to look at it fairly. Uh. Recently I dominated my children in a debate. <laughs> my wife says I should not be proud of dominating children in a debate. But my children wanted to know, how can John say that no one has ever seen God ever and yet Jesus claimed to be God? Right? And I said, I'll do you one better. Moses saw God's back and Isaiah saw the train of God's robe. Right? Yeah, I mean, we we won't even have to talk about the second person of the Trinity. The first person of the Trinity has been Scene, right? So um, the the most the, the best thing I could say to children who are having this discussion is can you at least be fair to John? What do I mean by that? I mean, do you think that John was writing his gospel and then writing his letters and then writing the book of Revelation without any remembrance or reference to these things? Do you think that he intentionally or purposefully, do you think he was uh, insane or senile that he he couldn't remember the things he was writing and he would contradict himself? I don't think that's true. I think that at the very least, just be fair to the Bible. Just be fair to what it says. And in that that case, when we look at the book of Revelation, be fair to it. In the sense of realize that it is apocalyptic language and uh, and you have to interpret it as such. That's just being fair. But when we look at Matthew's account here, let's just be fair. okay? Uh, In verses 1 through 3, uh, Matthew sets up the scene for us. Uh, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, "You see all these things? Do you, you see all these things? Do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down." As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, "Tell us. First question: When will these things be? Second question." And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? The disciples asked two questions. Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple, the temple in which he prayed, the temple in which he turned over tables, the temple uh, in which at his time the sacrifices were still going on. Because of his ultimate sacrifice, that temple's use has no more. He predicts its end, and this is um, the beginning of the last days. Okay? The disciples ask two things. When will that prediction take place? And they ask another question, what will be the sign of your coming? Okay? In verse in verses four through fourteen we read about the difficulty of the last days. Jesus begins to answer the disciples. He's describing wars and rumors of wars. He's describing tribulation, which is hardships, right? He's he's describing the difficulty of the last days. But is he talking in specific reference to the destruction of the temple? Yes. He's talking in specific terms for the destruction of the temple. Is he talking in specific terms about the uh, continuing suffering that the church will undergo? Yes, he is also talking about those things. You see, we need to get into our head that the last days began with the ascension of Jesus into the clouds. Okay? That is when the last days began. We're always talking about the last days as if they're somewhere out in the future. That, is, that isn't how the Bible talks about the last days. The last days have been going on for approximately 2,000 years now. Does that hurt your Western brain? I apologize. We'll see that uh, Peter has something to say about that in his second epistle, if if we can get there, right? The last days have been ongoing. They started with the persecution of of the apostles by the very persecutors of Jesus himself. And those persecutions and those tribulations expanded to the Roman emperor, right? And eventually the Roman emperor comes into Jerusalem. There were many Christians in Jerusalem at the time. And the Roman emperor lays siege and destroys the temple. And there was, there was, there was much sorrow and there was much pain and a lot of suffering. And woe to you if you were pregnant in Jerusalem at the time of the, uh, of the seizure of Jerusalem because it would be difficult for you to flee. Right. All of these things are true of the the specific tribulation that Jesus predicts about the destruction of the temple. That doesn't mean they're not also true about the continuing tribulation of the church through the end of this age. Dave. I
2: know you're pressed for time here, but can I just ask uh, your perspective on the question that the disciples asked Jesus? What will be the sign of your coming? Uh huh. I don't know if they... I mean, how did they even comprehend it? We, we read it and we think, okay, the second coming, but yeah. when they said that, mm-hmm. what were they thinking of in terms of the Messiah? He was already there with them. If they believed he was the Messiah, what are they referring to?
0: I think there are several parables of Jesus uh, about uh, the, the, if the man had known at what time the thief, what hour of the night the thief would have broken into his house, he would have been ready. Jesus has been prepping the apostles' for his departure, a time when he wasn't with them, and then a, a later return. He's been prepping them uh, through his teachings. And specifically, you know, we can think about the thief parable. Uh, if you had known what hour the thief was coming, you'd be watchful and ready. And uh, right, Or if you were a servant of a master who had gone on a journey and entrusted you with Ten, five, or two talents, right? One talent. I can't remember the order there. Uh, it was five, two, and one, right? Being been entrusted to you with talents. And if you had five and you invested it wisely and you made five more for the master, right? But if you were the one who hid it away, right? And Jesus called this a wicked servant, right? He wasn't prepared for uh, the return. So I think the disciples probably had some vague notion. Jesus is Jesus is leaving. They don't want to accept it. Up until his the very end, they they struggle to accept that he's even going to die, right? But he has been preparing them that he is going to die. There is going to be a period where he's not with them, but he is coming again. Yeah. Does that help? You disagree? No.
2: Yeah. Well, it's hard.
0: It's hard because we hold these two. Uh, we have we hold imminence and watchfulness as. Intention, don't we? We believe that Christ's return is imminent. It is near. It is going to happen. But at the same time, the Bible seems, seems to indicate that there are things that have to precede it. And if those things have to precede it, do we have eyes to see them? Are we just completely ignorant of them? They're going to happen, but everybody is totally caught off guard by this. Uh, I, I don't think we have. I think we just hold these two things in tension. But you want say to say something?
2: I think some of our knowledge from. Here rest of the new testament mm. into this question right and it seems to me like uh their concept is not what ours would be uh, and uh, so i'm just trying to understand what they yeah were thinking when they asked this
0: question they they obviously still believe that there was a political nature to right. jesus coming right. uh there, there was a lot of misunderstanding there that And maybe we correct for a little bit. Keep in mind that when
1: Christ was on earth in his first coming, his birth, his ministry, and his death, no one recognized that. The Jews, his own, did not recognize that. They
2: should have. John the Baptist came in to tell them. Yeah. But this is after Peter's confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the Living God. But that was Peter. That
1: wasn't everybody. That was just one of a few. So they were. You know, 500 believed that he was Christ by the time he died.
0: You know? Yeah, I, I think there's a tension here. I think that Jesus has been teaching this throughout his entire ministry. And clearly they, they have some idea because they know that the, that his first coming wasn't the only coming. That's okay. No, you're fine. Dave. Uh, my message I don't know if it's accurate or not, but um, wouldn't, or didn't
1: the disciples. Um, Obviously, Christ was there, but he hadn't taken the role of ruler and king, and they wanted him to. Yeah. Because when he came into Jerusalem, and they said, you know, hold the Lamb of God's word. So, in their minds, maybe they're thinking, and I'm just presupposition on my part, maybe they're thinking,
0: when are you going to step up to the plate here and become the the judge? Right. Yeah. Maybe Um, that's what they're thinking. I like it. Yeah, I, I I think that the disciples clearly don't have at this time a, a clearly a, a fully defined.
2: They're not thinking of these things. Death, resurrection, ascension,
0: coming right. back again someday. Yeah, well, and, and but I mean, in, in a lot of what Jesus says, he if you don't read the words carefully, you could think that. I've heard unbelievers say this. These are the scoffers, right? Um, Things have been the same since the fathers, right? Where is his coming, right? And if you read what Jesus says, you know, uh, I'm coming quickly. Uh, This generation will not pass away, right? You have to read it very carefully, but there is room for, uh, if you're just casually reading it, to say clearly Jesus thought that he was going to die and rise again and he was going to ascend but very quickly come back if not within maybe 30 40 years because that generation isn't going to pass away but it was very soon now uh in second peter peter talks about how uh for the the for the lord of days is it's a thousand years he does not count slowness slowness like we count slowness and he counts those people as scoffers they are scoffing because things have continued since the time of the fathers now uh where is his coming, but Peter says uh, that it, it's it's the nearness that we need to be looking for. It is an imminent return, but that means it's near. It, it doesn't define a particular time frame of how long that nearness is because to God, time is different than time is to us.
1: Hey Jason, I think you know, we don't have every conversation of this session recorded. Yeah. Nor all the thoughts of the disciples. Sure. So there could be some understanding that they have... Of- we just don't have to record it
0: here. That's true.
1: It's still
0: yeah, the gospel writers do edit. John himself says, "I could fill volumes that the world couldn't hold of everything that Jesus taught us." Right. So they have edited uh, these books to uh, to make an argument, to to drive the reader along to a specific conclusion. Right. Uh, not only uh, will there be difficulty in the last days, there will also be suffering in the last days. We could read uh, verses 15 through 28 uh, to read about the sufferings of the last days. And in all of these things, I would just say to you, tribulation often in the Bible isn't associated with uh, necessarily the, the wrath of God, right? Now, there is a sense in which when we're reading Revelation, we, we know that the sufferings that are poured out on the earth originate with God, we have to take that into account. But in the narrative sections, in the clear plain teachings of the Bible, uh, we see that tribulation is going to happen to Christ's followers. It is a- actually for Christ's followers, and on all of these sufferings uh, are something that we must endure through. And it is for our good, we have to understand this, that, that God allows the sufferings uh, to take place in our lives. Okay, But... Uh, let's go to verse 29 of chapter 24. Uh, after these difficulties and after these sufferings, uh, there is a, uh, an end to this, right? In verse 29, Here, here's another one of those times we just need to really be careful with the way we read this. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds uh, from one end of heaven to the other. Uh, there is, Jesus himself says that he is coming back. And in his coming back, he will gather his elect, his children, his brothers, his, uh, th- those who have placed their faith and trust and repentance of their sins upon him. He, he will send his angels to gather us to himself. This is going to be public. There will be a trumpet. We will see him, it is bodily, it is loud, and it is the end. This is the day of the Lord on which all the powers will be shaken. Powers, whether they're spiritual powers or earthly powers, authority that is set up in governments, or authority that uh, the evil one himself has set up in his uh, domain. All of these powers will be shaken and it will be visibly seen in disruption of the sun and uh, and the celestial heavenly bodies. Right. And Jesus will return to gather his saints. Some people will mourn. Right. In other passages, we hear that they cry for the rocks to fall upon them. Right? The one whom they have rejected. The one who died so that they might be saved. If they would only repent and believe, they will see him and they will mourn. For their great, their great suffering is only now beginning. I think it's
1: important to remember that, this, that, that there can be different genres within the gospel. So now we're reading apocalyptic literature.
0: Yeah. This paragraph. So it's. I would say we
1: were, we're now we're, we went from history. Yep. To apocalyptic, so when we think about the stars falling and all these things, yeah, the writers trying to make us think of judgment and right. Yeah, isn't he now answering the second question?
0: Yes uh a word about apocalyptic language uh apocalyptic language or even just prophetic language in general has an idea of foreshortening right you've heard the word foreshadowing right in literature foreshadowing is when you introduce a concept early in the book and then you know the reader's not supposed to understand how significant it is until it um until it you know comes about in, in the end time right uh but prophecy also has another concept. It's called foreshortening, which is to say that the prophet sees the event as a, as, as if it's happening in the next second. That's That's the way God delivers prophecy to the prophet, right? The prophet doesn't see the future. The prophet sees what is going to happen in the future, but he immediately perceives it. And so when he records it, he records it as if it is a done deal this is a message from God it is going to happen I just report it as I see it it is now right which is how in apocalyptic or prophetic language we can read immediately right we read immediately and uh, and this generation uh, this generation is a different story right uh, but uh, we can see that the foreshortening prophetic nature of this is to say that all of this suffering all of this tribulation has actually been happening from the time of Jesus uh, suffering himself and the suffering of his people all throughout uh, this time. But uh, Jesus wants us not to forget that his, his coming is near. Yeah, okay? So he said it immediately, but we, we just instinctively know that the man of lawlessness has to reveal himself, and there's lots of signs that come uh, before Jesus' return, but Jesus doesn't want us to get complacent about that. In verses 32 through 36, He tells his disciples from the fig tree learn this lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. These things is a reference back to uh, verse 3 in the disciples' question. Uh, when will these things, specifically the uh, destruction of the temple, now Jesus returns to that language of these things, this generation will not pass away until these things begin, right? When all these things are the destruction of Jerusalem in particular, Right, But that is only the beginning of tribulation that uh, works its way through the rest of history until Jesus' return. Okay? Uh, and so there is an unknown expectancy. Yes, it is near, so we must have an unknown expectancy. And Jesus talks about this through the rest of the chapter. Concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. Uh, does, does God not know everything? Jesus is speaking in his human nature as 100% human. No human being was given the knowledge. Whoever says, I have read the prophecies, I've calculated numerology, blah, 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 whatever it is, 1994. Oh, wait, that's already passed, right? But there's been several, several predictions of when Jesus is going to return. And people who, like, they think that they are so dedicated to the Bible, maybe they just need to read verse 36. No one knows, not the angels, not no human being, not even the Son in His humanity knows the return of Christ. And so we just have to wait with expectancy. Life goes on, right? We are marrying, giving in marriage, just like in the days of Noah when judgment came on on them immediately. And in verse uh, 42, therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Stay awake. Be expectant. The answer to the question, if Jesus were to return, I wouldn't have to die, is the biggest application we can make to all this. Stay expectant. Uh, Theologian Wayne Grudem gives a... uh, A very logical argument about how all the signs that must take place, uh, we can see them as uh, they probably have a future uh, fulfillment, but we can never be sure about that, right? In the middle of World War II... Who wouldn't have thought that Hitler was the man of lawlessness, right? In the middle of the Roman persecution, who wouldn't have thought that Nero or Domitian, uh, these Roman emperors, weren't the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist? John tells us many Antichrists have come, but there is a coming Antichrist. We can never know when all of these signs have been fulfilled. So we just wait with an unknown expectancy. We, we, we are ready for, the, for Christ's return, which is to say, don't find yourself unashamed when he returns. I'm sorry, don't find yourself ashamed when he returns. Um, live your life in such a way that Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Right? I'm not talking about perfection here. I mean, when Christ returns, where will he find you? Sobering question for us as we must dismiss now. Uh, let's let's go to worship because I'm a little over. Thank you, guys. We're dismissed.